Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. They call Dr. Gerald Goldhaber the warnings doctor because for over the past 42 years, he's become the nation's leading safety warnings and communications expert. He's the publisher of the monthly Goldhaber Warnings Report, which reaches over 10,000 lawyers nationally. And he joins us now to discuss his 11th book, Murder Incorporated, How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year, and what you can do about it. It's published by Publish Your Purpose Press, and I'm very pleased to welcome Jerry Goldhaber to our show now. Hi. Well, good morning, uh, Leonard. Good afternoon, Leonard. How are you? Yes, it's, it's afternoon here in the New York area. Um, you write that, quote, often brilliant, technologically sophisticated innovations exquisitely dissolved, designed to solve one perceived problem or another almost invariably create new ones with unintended and unanticipated consequences, uh, such as? Well, Any recent examples? Thing, of course. One thing that we have to confront is the uh, autonomous car. Mm. I don't call it a driverless car because some young millennial in uh, Cupertino is actually driving it through the programming. And uh, we really haven't completely tested the I call it driver distraction on steroids. Um, we all know what happens when people are using their cell phones or holding food. Or I once drove by a car and a person was he had his knees driving the steering wheel while he was eating and using his cell phone. Um, those things are common today, but in the autonomous car initially. We are seeing, we saw some ads prematurely, in my opinion, come out that showed passengers taking naps while the car did the work. I think that's a a very dangerous situation because, quite frankly, a lot of the programming is coming from people whose values are being placed into the programming. Let me give you an example. Let's suppose that there's a, a duck, a mother duckling and her little little ducklings (laughs) walking across the street, mama duck and the ducklings. And you or I are driving down the road towards those ducklings, and behind us, barreling towards us at high speeds, is a big uh, truck. And uh, if we stop for those ducks, you or I, the truck has a good chance of ramming into us and maybe killing us or seriously injuring us. Your 73-year-old grandma, you may stop. Or you may be a 38-year-old, and you may choose to have duck soup tonight instead. Who's I've, uh, I've read about a driverless car that uh, misread what was happening. A truck in front of it had made a right turn, and it, had a, it was all white. And the car just read that as s- straight ahead. So it crashed into the truck. That's right. In fact, ironically, if it's the same one I'm thinking of, it was the test driver for one of the car companies that was killed. And that had to do with the sunlight played havoc with the sensor system because we haven't worked everything quite out yet. But I think what we need to do is accept two things. One, that it's probably going to occur, but we need to realize that it should be an interaction with the human and the technology it's no time to take a nap in your car. You have to be ready to be plan B if something goes awry, just as a pilot is who's on a plane. They're trained to do override on the technology, even though the automatic systems take over. You give asbestos as one example, but doesn't its use 
date all the way back to the Stone Age. Does what? I'm sorry, I missed that. Asbestos. It, its use dates all the way back to the Stone Age. Uh, but as you write, it's an excellent electrical insulator and it, it's highly heat resistant. How long after it became a popular building material was it learned that it can cause all those lung conditions, including asbestosis and cancer? Well, asbestosis has been around for decades. In the 19, early 1970s, the government banned the use of asbestos. And the reason was that there were people who were contracting mesothelioma, lung disease, and asbestosis. And these are forms of lung cancer, which were not curable. Uh, the problem is not with the asbestos per se. You or I could hold a piece of asbestos in our hand. We could eat it. Nothing would happen to us. It might get indigestion. The problem comes when you grind it or shape it or form it, and the dust particles, which are in many cases invisible to the human eye, are inhaled. Anything that ends in osis, whether it's silicosis, which is inhaling sand particles, or asbestosis, inhaling asbestos, beryliosis, inhaling beryllium. It's the dust particles that get lodged in our lungs and cause respiratory failure and lung cancer. And that's been around for decades. Uh, what we now know well, is... Well, since the Stone Age, actually. Oh, of course. And the question is always when, whether or not industry had adequately warned about these issues and at what time did they cease using it because of the government? But did they warn prior to that? And that's been in the courts and still is right now. I, I just have a bunch of brake lining asbestos cases I'm dealing with as an expert where the early manufacturers of brake linings used asbestos linings because of their properties, but yet these brake linings can stay on the shelves for decades, and, and workers aren't aware that these are asbestos brake linings, and they've just stayed in old inventory. You begin your book with a reminder of a number of infamous cases of corporate malfeasance going back to the 70s, and then more recently, the critical design flaw in the Ford Pinto that led to loss of many lives and inspired Ralph Nader to write Unsafe at Any Speed, Takata's explosive airbags, uh, the way Volkswagen rigged the fuel emissions of its, of its vehicles to defraud uh, and get past U.S. EPA standards. And then, of course, there was also the General Motors ignition switch scandal and small Chevrolets that led to many deaths and injuries and the Toyota sticky foot pedal problem. <laughs> Have I left any other automotive issues out? You're hitting them pretty good. It's a rogues gallery, and it's quite terrifying. If you can imagine that you were in a car made by Toyota, whether it's a Lexus or a Toyota vehicle, and you were driving down the highway and you couldn't stop that vehicle, your brake system failed, the sticky pedal because the gas accelerator pedal stayed down and you were not able to stop it. And we've heard tapes of terrified people just before they were killed. Let's say you or I, let's say, Leonard, you or I decided to conspire and knock off your engineer and we decided we didn't like him. Reggie, don't listen to this. Reggie, I'm going to tell you, this is the way it's going to happen. Tonight, Leonard and I are going to sneak into your house. Well, we'll keep six feet apart from each other under these conditions. And we'll tape down your your gas pedal. You'll wake up in the morning to come to work here on, on the station, and you'll find that you can't stop the car. And unfortunately, you pass away in the crash. But Leonard and I aren't very good criminals. We leave our fingerprints all over, and the district attorney in Manhattan grabs us, and we go to jail. We don't have the death penalty, but we'll probably get life in jail. 
All right, that's what happens if you or I did that, Leonard. Well, Toyota did the same thing, except they did it to thousands of people. Mm. And what happened to them? Nobody went to jail. They simply. In fact, that's what I was going to ask about. Because all, all of those stories were headline stories, and you would have thought that it would have given corporations pause before they would engage in any more corporate or other practices that would endanger people. But these companies continue to make their products, although GM did declare bankruptcy in 2009. I don't know if it was a result of uh, the millions it had to pay as a result of the, the, that Chevy scandal. Well, listen, Toyota... The ch- around a billion seems to be the price tag to avoid that's your bail cost, I guess. Uh-huh. If you or I had done this, we'd be in jail for the rest of our lives without bail. Uh, Toyota does it. They wrote a check for a billion dollars, and that's why I called the book Murder Incorporated. You or I would be convicted of murder. The corporation pays uh-huh. the check of a billion, call it bail, and they go back out and they make their next car. And the same thing happened with GM with the uh, – their steering wheel issue, their ignition issue, their ignition issue costs just over a billion. So I think around a billion you do business with the federal government. Commit a few murders along the way, uh, maybe it's accidental murders, or in some cases, Takata, it's intentional. Those, that guy ought to be locked up because mm. the president, he, he, he had the studies done before anybody got injured. This is where the uh, airbags prematurely ignited in uh, heated, uh, humid environments, and shards of metal came out unexpectedly knocking off the driver and or the passenger. And they knew this would happen. Their engineers had predicted it, and the, uh, and the president told them to bury it. Of course, later on they got some conscience, and they showed it up with the New York Times, and the rest of us all learned about it. So these are outrageous. The Volkswagen example, we can't prove how many people with respiratory conditions suffered uh, with COPD or asthma worldwide because of the emissions rigging that the senior management knew about. Some of them did go to jail. Hmm. But the problem is that the prime directive, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan, you know what the, the world, the universe's prime directive is. Well, in America, the corporate prime directive happens to be lie, hide, and deny. And that's a tragedy. And that's why I call it how unregulated industry kills or injures thousands of Americans. And you mentioned the Ford Pinto one. This is the height of cynicism, Leonard. The, Lee Iacocca, whose name some people may remember, he passed away last year, I believe, at the age of 92 or 3. Uh, Lee Iacocca, before he ran Chrysler, ran Ford. And he ran Ford at the very same time the Pinto was developed, and it was a time when everybody was going after the compact market because if you remember back in the 70s, the gas crisis was on us, and industry, the auto industry, had these big lug cars and they used a lot of gas. So everybody went for compact cars. So Ford jumped in with the Pinto. It was their ticket to being in control of this market. And the slight problem was the uh, Ford's rear-mented Pinto engine, which had the engines mounted in the trunk, had a very bad habit of exploding with lots of flames when they were hitting the rear, killing everybody. So uh, what Ford was told to do is fix it. Well, they determined that it would cost $11 a part to fix it. Now, you'd say, well, that's a pretty good deal. Go fix it. Iacocca said, wait a second. We have 12.5 million cars. Pintos. That will cost us $137,500,000 to fix it. And, uh, well, then the question is, well, what is it going to cost? What's the benefit? What are we saving here? Well, we forget one thing. It's not dollars that we're saving. It's human lives. Well, they're going to have to pay 
the the the, the uh, families of victims of lawsuits. So did they work out the the math on that? What, what oh yeah, so that's them another more? part of it. The deal on the math on lawsuits is very simple. You don't tell anybody about it. You settle it very quickly. It's called a non-disclosure agreement. You sign it. The government doesn't hear about it. Nobody in the country hears about it. And they go merry way selling more Pintos. So $137,500,000 to fix it. Now, here's the rub. Everybody in business, whether you went to Harvard or anywhere else, understands what a cost-benefit analysis is. This is how they cynically used this. Now, Iacocca wasn't a fool. He decided to compare the cost. Now, remember, that's $137 million or so to fix it. That's the cost. What's the benefit? Well, there were 180 lives lost, and there were 180 serious injuries at the time that he approached the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, who happened to oversee all things cars and trucks. He didn't want to come up with a value in a human life. He said, that would be too crass even for Ford. So he cons the NHTSA, the government regulatory agency. The regulatory agency said, why don't you come up with a value of a human life? Well, for, for reasons I make very clear in my book about collusion between the regulatory environment and the industries they're supposed to regulate, I'll talk about that later. But because of that, the industry gave them a number. Believe it or not, our life is worth 200000 bucks, and that's dead or alive. And if we're injured... It's only a mere 67 grand. Well, you do the math. You multiply the 180 injuries and the 180 lives times those figures, and you come up with just under 50 million, let's say 48 million bucks. That's the benefit. So Iacoga, voila, he claimed loudly, and there's a famous memo, they call it the Pinto Memo. He says it's going to cost us about three times as much to fix it, the cost, to the benefit would be about a third of that. So why should we fix something when we can save three times the cost of fixing it? And that is how you would bastardize the concept of a cost-benefit analysis. If Harvard's listening, I doubt they're <laughs> teaching their future managers that interpretation. But that, Inter interest Interestingly, uh, that was all because people wanted to make small cars inspired by the popularity of the Volkswagen Bug, which Volkswagen isn't making anymore. In fact, Right now, the most popular kind of car in this country is the SUV, a large car. So do you think that's a direct result of this, or do, do they just present other kinds of problems? No, the SUV came about because, again, I have to credit Leia Coker, brilliant marketer, absolutely brilliant. Unfortunately, he branded, he was great at branding, and one of his famous, infamous branding concept slogans was, safety doesn't sell. Unfortunately, he said that, but he created the minivan which led to the SUV because he realized that the American public had families and they wanted their families to sit in space and luxury and to be economical and affordable to them. So he created the SUV. Chrysler was the first to put it out. And then later, uh, this evolved into SUVs, the minivan to the SUV. Gas guzzlers galore. Very bad for the environment, but very good for Ford and later Chrysler's pocketbook. And this was as a result of people being, it was, you know, we go in cycles. First they had the gas guzzlers and the gas crisis. We went to compact. And then people got tired of squeezing into compacts. Remember, uh, also another issue in my book is how overweight we are and the food industry <laughs> and the lack of warnings. And we'll so people being overweight couldn't fit in the cars. They rebelled, and the industry's market research responded, and, and they did their research, and they responded with what led to very big gas-guzzling spacious cars.
My guest on Leonard Lopez at Large today here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM is Dr. Gerald M. Goldhaber. His latest book is called Murder Incorporated, How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injured Thousands of Americans Every Year. So we've been talking about, well, have any new laws or regulations been enacted to prevent those sorts of things from happening again? Well, we had a great move, two two great examples, because I was involved in both of them. One is the, uh, the in 2016, the FDA. Now, this switch topics from the auto industry to yeah, the... Yeah, I was uh, wanting to get onto other things, because you have chapters uh, that cover a wide range of hazards, including foods, the workplace, travel, recreation, medicine, uh, although I guess they all... All the problems are usually the result of corporate malfeasance. Yes, this is exactly what I've discovered in my research. Com- in combination, not just the cor- the problem has been that for decades corporations have placed their profits over our safety, and government regulators who are supposed to rein them in have not done their jobs. And the reason they haven't done them, Leonard, is because most regulators, my research crackerjack research team I have, seriously, they found that two-thirds, two-thirds of all regulators since these agencies began, I'm talking about OSHA, I'm talking about the EPA, the FDA, NHTSA we've been talking about already, and on the list goes, all those regulators either came from, two-thirds of them either came from or went to the agents, the uh, government, uh, the uh, corporation, they're supposed to regulate. And in some cases, they, the uh, revolving door, I call it, hit them in the bottom coming and going. How can you be objective and look out for our interests? And by the way, this cuts across a political uh, spectrum. It doesn't matter who the president is or was, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's a Democrat or Republican. The regulators are revolving door conflicted. So it's a very difficult environment that we, the consumer, find ourselves in, which is why the theme of my book is I'm trying to educate the corporation that it's in their financial interest to save. You mentioned those lawsuits. You'll save a trillion and a half dollars every year in lawsuit costs dealing with warnings and product liability if you do the right thing and tell the truth. That's what I call principled disclosure in the book. Tell the truth, very radical term. Or, but sometimes it's impossible to tell the truth. The, the Boeing 737 MAX scandal was headline news for months, and, and Boeing has been seriously hurt. Uh, and uh, I guess government has stepped in to some degree. But is that just simply locking the barn door after the horse has been stolen? It, it absolutely is. And when I say in my book that the fox is in the hen house, it really isn't. The fox has eaten the hen house with this revolving door. It's, it's really disgraceful. Two-thirds of all regulators. So I'm telling the regulators two things. Do your job and put a 10-year gap between coming and going to the industry. You can't leave your company and go to a regulatory agency that regulates your company for a decade, and you can't go back for a decade. They'll kill the revolving door and we'll have some good honest brokers in government. But you're not going to have that overnight. Corporations, I have a very simple message. It's in your financial interest to tell the truth because then you won't get sued for hiding, lying, and denying, which we call failure to warn. You won't get sued if you warn. It, I mean, you may get sued, but you won't lose the suits if you have adequate warnings. It's very simple. 
And I have proof of that for all the cases and, and clients of mine in companies, in, cor- in corporations, where I've helped them warn, engage in principal disclosure, and they don't get sued after that. It's not because of me. It's just because they're telling the truth. It's a great thing, by the way. You'll feel good when you do the right thing, Leonard. And, but until then, consumers, it's up to us. And that's why I'm a consumer advocate, because I don't, I'm not Pollyanna that overnight corporations are going to see the light. The, the business roundtable, you asked if something's changed. In June, the business roundtable, headed up by uh, Jamie Moore, I think his name is the uh, president of Chase, uh, they, uh, 165 leading corporations signed what I call the do-good resolution. You know, we are going to answer to people beyond our shareholders. And I looked at some of the signatories. I think these are some of the biggest crooks in the country in terms of the products that they put out and the lawsuits they're involved in. So it's going to take a major, uh, Bernie Sanders likes to say, a revolution. It's going to take a, a new revolutionary train of thought to get corporations to say you can have profits and safety. They're not mutually exclusive. You, you now, is can do simply, the right thing. Is this simply an American problem or foreign Companies, corporations, airlines in particular, just as likely to be unregulated and dangerous? No, it's America more so than anywhere else because you don't see the revolving door in other countries. There are very strict codes for regulators in Europe. There are very strict standards Asian countries. I mean, sure, you'll find rogue players like Toyota's pedal and like the Takata airbag. You're going to find these things. But the culture in the United States is very different, and it's been very lax in regulatory environment. Now, there's some hope. The, uh, moving to food, for example, I was trying to say the FDA uh, announced a change in the nutritional label because it's been Greek to most of us to try and understand what it is we're eating, what, and particularly if you're diabetic, understanding the amount of sugar in a food. It's a very dangerous situation. Well, it's also printed in, in what we used to call when I was in the business mice type. It's so often so small, it's hard to see it, even if you, uh, even if it was written well. Well, it's hide and seek. That's what I say. It's one of the yeah. corporate prime directors is besides denying and lying and obfuscating, it's hiding. Uh, they'll do anything. Even when I help a client, I have one client who was in the soft drink industry, and we put some warnings on the bottles to prevent the, the to inform customers that the caps could blow off. And uh, the whole industry, uh, most of the big players wouldn't do it. They just said we'll absorb the cost and and raise it a penny, and we'll pay the lawsuits. Well, this client had about 20% of the industry, and they agreed to do it, and they did the right thing until the marketing department got wind of what I was up to. So it was out there for a few months, and then I kept noticing when I shopped and I was looking at my client's product, and I saw all these big ads they'd place in multicolors to hide my warning. <laughs> I'd call up the, the lawyers and try to put a stop to it. Hide and seek is the game. They think big and they warn small, I like to say in my book. Uh, this is uh, the FDA had in 2016, they said, let's change the nutritional label, at least do one thing. Instead of hiding behind 55 labeling nightmare foreign language, high chemistry degree requirement words to describe sugar, like high fructose corn syrup and evaporated cane juice, and one of my favorites, mannose, there's 55 terms the industry used. And they wanted to use them liberally because the more terms they hid the sugar behind, they could lower it in the ingredients and the label, and then nobody would know how much sugar was in there. 
So now they changed it so you have to say added sugar. But that's only half of the answer. If you look at any label, and this is the biggest problem in, in our food is sugar, it's always in grams. How many of your listeners, mm-hmm. even in New York City, speak metric? I'll tell yes. you the answer. Five out of 100. Nationally, 5% speak metric. The sugar industry, the food industry knows that. That's why they lobbied against the change. I recommended to the FDA that they go to teaspoons, and I gave public testimony to that, but they, they stuck by grams, and this is where it gets really dangerous. Uh, the best-selling Coca-Cola is a 20-ounce bottle of Coke or a 20-ounce Mountain Dew. A 20-ounce bottle of Coke has, 16, has 65 grams. Well, you might say, oh, that's a lot of grams. Divide by four, now you'll understand how really bad it is. 16 teaspoons of sugar, four grams to a teaspoon. Mountain Dew is the champion. Get this, 77 grams of sugar in one bottle of Mountain Dew. That's almost 20 teaspoons, 19 teaspoons of sugar. Put it in perspective, if you were having a cup of coffee or tea, would you put 19 teaspoons in your coffee this morning? Well, that's that's on the ingredient label. Uh, shouldn't there be a warning label? Aren't warning labels supposed to protect us from those things? Uh, although I, I wonder how accurate they are in general. As you point out, they're often barely legible. I recommended that to the FDA uh, that they put a danger warn, a danger, a warning label that started off by saying danger. This product contains an enormous amount of sugar. Consult uh-huh. your physician, especially if you're diabetic, and so on. And, of course, that was not accepted. But the problem is that the public doesn't even know the amount. before. To, and, and the current administration fought this rule, by the way, when they took over. It was supposed to go into effect in 2016 when the FDA approved it. And the current administration delayed it for two full years. How many diabetics may have perished in those two years? The Heart Association tells us that drinking one of those, just one, Diet Coke with 16 teaspoons, uh, not diet, one uh, regular Coke with 16 teaspoons of sugar a day. If you drink one can of a sugary drink a day, one bottle, you have increased your risk of a heart attack by 35%. Those now, are the alarming statistics. Now, you mentioned that there has been a history of, go- of government regulatory agencies that are that uh, are supposed to protect us, but instead appoint leaders who come and go from the same industries, and that that's been a a major concern during the Trump administration. But doesn't it go all the way back? For example, uh, Richard Nixon gave us the EPA, and then Ronald Reagan tried to dismantle it. Uh, A number, uh, then it it was weakened by a number of presidents that followed until Donald Trump really tried to destroy it. So um, how serious has the deregulation been over the years? This is exactly my point. It's, irre- it's irrelevant to me who the president was, what the administration looked like, because when we found out that 68% were conflicted by the revolving door, that cut across over 50 years of regulations, all administrations. Uh, you know, people thought, well, President Obama his uh, administration would do something about it. And uh, when he appointed an FDA commissioner, that commissioner, Robert Califf, uh, who Trump uh, replaced with Scott Gottlieb, 
uh, Robert Califf, he was a leading cardiologist, a very distinguished researcher from Duke University. Califf had, at the congressional hearings, which I got the transcripts of from my book, uh, Califf was excoriated by Congress because it turns out the independent Duke University research uh, on pharmaceutical research that he headed up had been funded with hundreds of millions of dollars and maybe more from the pharmaceutical industry. And that was the man who Obama called neutral. For, and that gets even worse. Mm-hmm. Turns out Califf had a side gig. You know, we all have side gigs these days. His side gig was a company that he was chairman of, whose who's right, and this is written in the congressional record, whose who's, uh, who's statement of philosophy and mission was that we will help you avoid and evade FDA regulations. Congress yelled at him and screamed at him, and then they voted him in 99 to nothing. <laughs> I mean, we don't mean to scare laugh, our listeners. tragic. We don't mean to scare our listeners, but uh, we hope that uh, they're enjoying <laughs> this show on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. I don't know if Bruce Springsteen intended to uh, honor Dr. Gerald Goldhaber uh, by <laughs> doing that song, Murder Incorporated, but uh, that's uh, Jerry Goldhaber's, uh, the title of his new book, Murder Incorporated, How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year and What You Can Do About It. It's published by Your Purpose, Publish Your Purpose Press with an introduction by Aaron Brockovich, uh, I guess a kindred spirit there. Um, now, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission estimates that over a trillion dollars is spent in each year in liability litigation and settlement payments on behalf of consumers injured or killed by defective products or by products with undisclosed hazards. Uh, did almost all of them have a failure to warn claim? Yes, ninety. The statistics are overwhelming. Better than ninety-eight percent of all products liability lawsuits, or on the plaintiff side, we call them personal injury lawsuits. The defense calls it products liability, where they're held liable for their products they make. Ninety-eight, ninety-nine percent of them all have a failure to warn claim. They usually have two claims in most of those lawsuits. One is your product has a defect in it. Something went wrong. And you get a whole bunch of engineers to fight back and forth over whether it was wrong or how bad it was, whether the uh, defect led to the death or injury. And then the warnings claim, well, you had a bad thing uh, you designed into this product, but you didn't tell the consumers what the risk was. You see, my theory is that if you tell the truth, Consumers won't abandon you. They'll respect you. There's an old movie out, A Few Good Men, and we, this unfortunately relates to what's going on today with the coronavirus. And there's a line from Jack Nicholson in there, you know, you can't handle the truth. Well, 
the truth is, if you'll forgive me double using it, the truth is we can handle the truth. We want the truth. I'm not trying. I'm not, I don't want to be political about any of this stuff, quite frankly, because this cuts across what I'm writing about. Has nothing to do with politics. It cuts across all the parties. But you do see an example right now of two different styles, shall we say, of of leadership. Uh, one style where some of the leaders are playing dodgeball with the truth and engaging in happy talk and trying to water it down. And you see another leader, say Governor. Cuomo of New York is an example where he tells it to you straight out what the issues are. Living here in New York City, where you are and I am, we're at ground zero, and we want the truth. We want to know what we can do and what we can't do, and uh, we can handle it as long as we know what we're up against, and then we can make plans. Um, Epictetus, the famous Greek Stoic philosopher, said we can't choose our external circumstances, but we can always choose how we respond to them. And uh, this is where we are today. We need to choose how to respond. And if corporations tell us the truth, we can decide. I call this giving us, in the book, I call it informed choice. If the corporation engages in integrity, principled disclosure, then we as consumers will have the opportunity to make informed choice. Stating it another way, Right now, we're playing with a half a deck of cards, Leonard, and my book, the purpose, my purpose in writing this book was to help America get a full deck of cards and to show you the tools. How does that apply to the the current coronavirus pandemic problem? Well, the coronavirus story... I'm sure people are calling you. It's a warning story, in effect. Uh, Start with... Why is it a warning story? Because it's a hazard, and it's a hidden hazard. We can't see it. We can't taste it. We can't feel it. None of our senses work. It's just lurking out there, and we need information because, by definition, a hidden hazard has to be warned about. You have to know what you're facing and what you need to do, what safety steps you need to take. Because in any warning, you have to know what the hazard is, and then you have to know what to do about it. You have to know how serious the hazard is, what is it, how serious is it, and what do I do about it? How can I avoid it? How can I avoid the effects of it? And that's whether it's the coronavirus or a Takata airbag. We need to know. And this is a warning story in one major uh, difference I have never seen in my life, never, 90% compliance. And uh, if if the polls are to be believed, 90% of the country is is saying they're practicing uh, safe distance, social distancing. I'm going stir crazy. I don't know about you. Well, we all, but you don't have to be. Um, John Lewis said, the the civil rights activist, we don't choose the times, but we can choose how we respond to the times, sort of uh, playing off of what Epictetus once told us a thousand years ago. And we can choose. We can make this about me, and in Yiddish we say we can kvetch, I don't have enough of this, or I'm getting crazy, or we can make it about we. I have a list of things I've been telling consumers around the country. I've been doing these radio shows for a few weeks, and my tips include having a purpose. My, my publisher's name is Publisher Purpose, and as I've said, my purpose is to help consumers become more informed as to what choices they make in buying and using products. Now, in the coronavirus, we do have a choice. 90% have chosen 
to separate. But now that means you're at home. What are you doing at home? Because there's, this is really the solution. Stay at home if you can, unless you're a central worker, obviously. But if you're at home or if you're broadcast, I, I broadcast at home. I have my own home studio, and so I'm keeping separation from people that way. But I, I, what's your purpose? Make it more about we. Start simple. Maybe there's five people worse off than you are from your church, your synagogue, your mosque, or somebody you know, your neighbors, friends, elderly perhaps. Call them up. Make a list of five people you can just call for 10 minutes each each day. That'll take you one hour a day. You'll be making something. You'll have a purpose. I think there's three steps to prevent us from being driven crazy during this crisis. Step one is to look after our own health. That means getting sleep. That means having the right foods, not junk foods, because unfortunately stuck at home and just watching TV and watching cable news will drive you nuts and get you fat and make you lazy, and you'll see stock markets going down and death numbers going up. So shut cable news off totally. Everybody do it right now, like in the movie network. I want everybody to get up, instead of going to the window and screaming, I'm mad as hell, get up and shut your TV off right now or change the channel to the Golden Girls, and you'll go. We hope they're listening to us. Well, I hope they're listening to radio and getting good information because you need solid information, Leonard. You're performing an essential public service because you're giving your listeners solid information that they can use. So we have to take care of our health. We have to have a purpose. And then finally, community. Communities, reach out to family, to friends. You know, there's an old saying, I married you for better and worse, but not for lunch. Well, guess what, Mm -hmm. folks? You're with your partner now for lunch. So make the best of it. Uh, explore avenues together. Your kids are home. If you have kids, they're online learning. So here's a chance to look over their shoulders and get inside the sausage factory of their education. Maybe now, the teacher will even let you be a visitor. And certainly you'll be a better helper with their homework if you know what they're learning. Now, uh, you, 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 mentioned, you mentioned uh, being warned about hazards, and you write that the common ladder is for all practical purposes, a list of hazards looking for a purpose, but they don't put warning labels on ladders. There are so unfortunately, you're wrong on that. I'm afraid that there are more warnings on ladders than on really? virtually any other product. They're all around the side. And you mentioned earlier, a tiny print. You'll need a magnifying glass. <laughs> and this is probably why you haven't noticed them all. There are there stickers that are pulled off. The industry puts these warnings on the ladders, knowing people are either going to step on them, destroy them, pull them off, or if they are stuck on there, they're in such tiny print, and they're obscured on the side where, you know, when you go on a ladder, you go up the steps in front of you, not looking on the side. And there are some uh, issues with ladders that you need to worry about, but most of it's common sense, and a lot of it doesn't need a warning, but some of it does. There's a uh, one case I had actually in Texas, a ladder case, the uh, the person was jumping the ladder. That's when you get on a ladder. Instead, of, It was only a three-, four-step ladder. Instead of coming down and moving the ladder, he decided to jump and move it forward and then collapsed and he got seriously injured. You might say, how do you warn about stupidity? That's a good question. <laughs> well, what about the warnings that appear on almost every TV commercial for a prescription drug? I know you've written about this. Is it enough for them to warn that in some cases taking the medication may lead to suicidal thoughts and even death, usually uh, provided by an announcer while images of people having wonderful times are, are being shown on the screen? 
Well, see, here's the deal. The, uh, the way the industry used to work was they'd work through doctors, and they'd have the doctor give a speech. They have paid the doctors. That's what we didn't know about till recently. They used to pay the doctors 50000 bucks, give a speech to other doctors recommending. So they'd market their products that way, and then they'd hide behind what legally was called the learned intermediary doctrine. Simply stated, they set the doctors up as the fall guy. They paid them a fee, told them to recommend the drug and write the script, and they sat back. And if somebody got injured, they said, hey, don't blame me. The doctor wrote the script, and you have to sue the doctor. Well, that method of marketing stopped and was been re- because the government made them stop it, and it became apparent that if they're going to continue to sell their drugs, they had to go DTC, direct-to-consumer. So direct-to-consumer means there's nobody in between you. There's no more intermediary that you can hide behind. So now they're exposed. How do they protect themselves? By warning, and they have to comply with FDA warnings. Well, the FDA has to approve them. This is what I mean by conflicted revolving door. With the FDA being run by people with very close ties to the pharmaceutical industry, it's scandalous that they've approved these ridiculous ads. And I have a part-time commentary relationship in the past with CNN. I've been on very recently because of all that's going on. But the point is that the the um, CNN, most of their revenue, or a good portion of it, I think it's forty percent or more, it comes from the farmer industry as well as mm-hmm. all the other in, uh, networks. And, and we know that as consumers, you just turn your, your TV on, you'll see. It's either car hour ads, it. it's car ads, and prescription drug ads uh, advertising drugs for rheumatoid arthritis, diabetes. COPD, whatever that is, uh, other serious medical conditions. Uh, but they do say, ask your doctor. That's right. So is that That's a way of protecting themselves? That's exactly what it is. Ask your doctor is their way of sneaking in the learned intermediary doctrine because they're not allowed to write prescriptions themselves. However, you'll notice that the warnings they give, and you mentioned, are all given at the time that grandma's throwing a football to grandpa yes. while grandpa's holding the cute little kid and the dog is running and they're out in the park. It's because TV is a visual medium. If I ran a pharmaceutical ad on your station right now, I would get 60% of the audience in my testing, this is exactly what I'm, who knew there was a warning. If I run that same ad on television, I'll be lucky if I get 5% because it's a deliberate attempt by the industry to distract you with sexy and young and healthy and friendly people doing all sorts of engaging things in beautiful environments to distract you from the words. And this, the FDA approves this. This is what I, where we're, don't pay attention to the uh, visuals, but you have to because TV is a visual medium. Okay, those are, those are corporations, but you say our commuter and freight rail systems are also a real problem. So government is just as culpable in many cases? Absolutely. I had a lawsuit recently. In fact, it, uh, some of it settled, some is still going on. Uh, but the uh, a bus got stuck on a train crossing and a freight train hit it. Uh, there is such a system as positive train control, PTC, that Congress had mandated should have gone into effect throughout the United States uh, years ago. And they kept updating it and giving them an extension and extension. There was a, pl- a train crash in Philadelphia, which I did comment on for CNN, which uh, did not have from the, I was on the Amtrak from Washington to New York, and the train went high speed around a bend and uh, crashed, and uh, people were killed. 
and they didn't have the positive train control, which is really a simple system. It buzzes and warns the engineer that a hazard is in front, and if the engineer doesn't take action, automatically the train is stopped, controlled by the headquarters where the uh, system is also uh, giving a warning. That was not in effect. So, yeah, the government has been very lax in, in enforcing train warning systems. And uh, there are other devices that have issues also on trains that don't carry adequate warnings. It's almost sad to say, Leonard, we were safer with the old-time signal man who waved the flag than in some cases we are today. There are numerous thousands of train incidents over crossings, thousands still every year, where trucks and cars are hit. Speaking with Dr. Gerald M. Goldhaber, his latest book, Murder Incorporated, How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year. Uh, this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Uh, so you mentioned earlier that settlements are often done secretly with non-disclosure agreements. Uh, doesn't the public have a right to know or people in the business like you? Well, let me tell you, this goes back, and the public was probably, and your listeners probably too, remember the famous McDonald's hot coffee lawsuit back in 92 mm. when a sweet old lady named Stella Liebig got scalded by coffee. And unfortunately, the public got the wrong information. The comedians, Jay Leno and David Letterman at the time, made a poster girl out of her for, for silliness and uh, lack of knowledge of common sense. And everybody tried to say the grandson who was driving her gunned it through the drive-thru and the coffee went flying. Nothing further from the truth. And Ralph Nader told me this, actually, that the, uh, the grandson pulled the truck over, the pickup truck, into the McDonald's parking lot, shut the engine, and she had a mild case of Parkinson's and was shaking and spilled her coffee in her lap. What the public didn't know was that McDonald's had juiced its coffee 30 degrees higher than the industry because their market research, and I'll admit, full disclosure, my company had done some of that market research. Mm-hmm. And we found that the, the, uh, the public wanted the coffee hot when, the, when they got to work from the uh, drive-thru. And their average time of commute was about 12 minutes. To get it there, they turned it up 30 degrees, and the rest is history. Here's what we didn't know. And this lawsuit gets filed by Stella Liebig, and everybody makes fun of this sweet 82-year-old woman. And what happened was, in the process of the lawsuit, two things became public. One, there were about 700 Stella Liebigs before this one, but nobody knew about it. They thought she was the only one in the country who was stupid enough to drop her coffee and sue the company for hot coffee. That was number one. Nader's uh, Museum in, Har- in outside Hartford has a, uh, a special exhibit on this uh, very case. 700 priors, and nobody knew about them, non-disclosure agreement. Is that Second, because the system forces settlements instead of allowing plaintiffs to take cases to trial? Because absolutely. Uh, there's uh, the fear of runaway juries. Grisham had it right in his book, The Runaway Jury. That's exactly correct, Leonard. So both sides mistrust the system. Nobody wants to go to trial. I've I've jokingly kid my friends who are experts like me who try to go to court. For us, you know, it's it's a good experience. We like to be in the courtroom. It's like the Super Bowl or the movie Rudy. We're all dressed up. Just get us into the game. But the problem is that neither side – 
trusts the jury, and so the idea is to get the case settled as fast as possible with a dollar value that both sides, by sides I mean the lawyers, because if you're the personal injury lawyer representing the injured party, you'll try to bring that offer to the uh, injured person or their family and help convince them that this is a good offer. If you're the defense, your insurance industry covers the the defendants, and they have charts. They actually have charts, and they can know if there are thousands of lawsuits of different types of products and types of injuries. They know how much it's going to cost. They know what it's worth. And there are literally charts. That, and this is very cynical, but there are actual charts, and they know what a lawsuit will cost if it goes to trial, how much it's worth to settle versus that. And and this is really a travesty on American justice, but that's the way the system works. And, and you say yep. as a result, nearly 98% of all products cases settle. Only two in 100 actually go to trial? That's absolutely true. That's absolutely true. Well, I got that statistic from you, so I assume yeah. you agree. <laughs> well, I hope it's true. We, got, we research everything. So we call it triple fact-checking. I learned that at the network. <laughs> triple fact-checking. <laughs> So you were going to say something. I'm sorry. I interrupted Yeah, well, the other thing was the two things that came out of the McDonald's lawsuit, and they're very important. One was public didn't know this was business as usual. To this day, McDonald's doesn't have a warning on their coffee. You can't see this, but I actually went over to the McDonald's McCafe over here down the street in New York on 6th Ave., and the only thing they say on there, and it's a it's a yellowish orange label around the coffee cup, and in white print. I'm reading this right now. In white. Now get this: white on yellow. You can imagine how visible that is, right? Caution: hot. That's all it says. Now the second thing people didn't know was how hot is hot. They didn't know 700 people before Stella got scalded, and another thousand since then. What they also didn't know was hot was how hot is hot? How hazardous was it? People say, oh, yeah, coffee's hot. They don't know that hot, in this case, was 30 degrees hotter than everybody else's coffee. And 130 degrees Fahrenheit, you'll scald and give third-degree burns to anybody. Public doesn't know that. And that's the important thing about a warning. A warning wouldn't be caution hot, white print on a a yellowish-orange background, I defy you if you didn't know what you were looking for to see. It's got to say danger. This coffee is 130 degrees Fahrenheit and could cause third-degree burns. Be careful. Now, we don't have much time left, but uh, something else, uh, something we've discussed on a previous show is here, the misuse of private information collected by smart devices. Haven't there been attempts to regulate that? And how serious a problem does it cause uh, with things like cyberbullying? Well, this is a major issue in my communications chapter on there. and uh, That's why I brought I, it up. I talk about this. We are in a country where the technology is, and this gets pretty sexist. I like to say it very simply. We're in a culture, even today, where boys make toys for other boys. What does that mean? Most engineers who design products are male. Most of the customers who are early adopters of the technologies are male. So little boys are making boys, other boys' products that are being adopted by boys. And this is a problem because they're being adopted, and the people who adopt them are standing in lines without even realizing what they're standing in lines to adopt. Peter Drucker, a very famous management consultant, the late Peter Drucker, used to differentiate between efficiency and effectiveness. 
Effectiveness is the metric we should all be looking at, whether it's in business or in our lives, as it applies to technology. And the question is, does it help you achieve your goals? That's what effectiveness is. Efficiency, sure, any technology can do things faster, quicker, cheaper, farther, and so on and so on. But does it make our lives better? Does it help us achieve our goals in business or our personal goals in life? Are we better people? And at what price are we willing to take the benefits of efficiency? Now to your question of privacy. If you use Peter Drucker's model of effectiveness, you have to ask the question, are we willing to sacrifice some of our own privacy? The scandal with Facebook right now is real. There is, and I can tell you firsthand in marketing my own book, the marketing people have targeted and know who is more likely to buy my book at a level of seven micro demographics. Mm. Now, in the right hand, I'm trying to get a book out that has some good purpose. I'm trying to be a consumer advocate that tries to get people to play with a full deck of cards. Uh, but what if I were an adversary, and let me call myself Russian Jerry, <laughs> mm-hmm. in the last election? Using those very micro-targeted demographic sophisticated measurements coupled with a technology that reaches 3 billion people, I have the ability to ma- manipulate your, your thoughts, your behavior, what you see, what you read. I have also worries seriously about the, uh, a nation of autonomous vehicles totally, totally accessible to hackers. And if you don't think that's true, you, you really – and I don't expect the public to understand this because they're going to be marketed uh, a vehicle that they can just hopefully uh, will reduce injuries. And there is evidence of that, that human error causes many, if not most, of our automobile accidents. And if we can get the human error out of it, which is the noble theory behind autonomous vehicles. But what if evil players can hack into it? And, 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 and what if there is – or our trucking industry – which will be the first adopters of the autonomous vehicles because they're on long highways. Uh, what if hacking and what could a, a, a bad actor do to our food distribution system with hacking of our, our systems? There, there are issues that we have to look into. Cell phones are not private. I always tell my kids, and they tell me now more than ever, everything you say on the Internet, everything you say in your cell phone, everything you do, you definitely should assume that the world is going to know. We and have to finally, leave it there. I'm sorry, we've run out of time. Another uh, time. My guest, uh, Gerald M. Goldhaber, his book, Murder Incorporated, How Unregulated Industry Kills or Injures Thousands of Americans Every Year. Thank you so much for being on our show. Glad to be there, Leonard, and thank you for the service you're doing, especially now in this time when we need good, solid, reliable information. Thank you, sir. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Reggie Johnson, our audio engineer, and to executive producer Jesse Lent. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out Leonard Lopate at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. I'm continuing to broadcast from my home in the interest of the self-isolating, but we hope that you will continue to tune in despite our technical limitations and that you'll join us on Monday when Seth Tibbet will discuss his book, 
search in search of the wild turf turfery, how a business misfit pioneered plant-based foods before they were cool. Have a great weekend.